In this episode, you'll take a behind-the-scenes look at Foresight's recent presentation at ETH Denver on DAOs and tech trees to fund early-stage biotech, nanotech, computing, and neurotech research. As a reminder, we are a 501c3 nonprofit to advance ambitious technologies that are too early stage or interdisciplinary for legacy institutions to take on. We focus on decentralized computing, molecular machines, biotech and health extension, neurotech and space tech. We are currently exploring a DAO to fund progress in our focus areas, for example, by funding our fellows and our technology trees. A few words about these trees. Led by domain experts and ultimately open for crowdsourcing, we're currently building technology trees for challenges in longevity, autonomy precise manufacturing, brain-computer interfaces, private machine learning, and asteroid mining. Long-term, the hope is that these trees integrate across domains, allowing different funders to chart desired paths through the tech forests. There's a bunch of different prototypes already out there on our website. But our plan is really for researchers to ultimately submit challenges to make progress on their node. Entrepreneurs could then bid with project proposals, domain experts and funders could decide what the DAO could fund by reputation-based voting or something like this. We're still in the early days of exploring this, as you can tell, especially at this conference. And so after briefly presenting the state of the art of the projects, we're asking for participants' input. Uh, they should bring their knowledge on different DAO models, prediction markets, reputation mechanisms, bounties, and so forth. And so if you're interested in this, then feel free to join these efforts on our website under the Tech Tree uh, section. For now, I hope you enjoy this behind-the-scenes view at a very, very early conference and workshop session. I'll start uh, off with just giving a, a super quick overview. So Fawcett um, International got started 35 years ago now, so the 30-plus is not even accurate anymore. It's really one of the OG, like, long-termist, futurist organizations. And uh, back in the days, I mean, we were already pretty, I think, fringe back, back then and still are. So in these 30 years, uh, we have still managed to keep the edge, I think. Uh, I would say many of our members really are signed up to Cryonics. That was like the first thing that drew me uh, to Foresight. But uh, but many of uh, our um, many of our members have for 30 plus years now cared very very deeply about molecular nanotechnology, about space uh, space exploration, space development, and about many of the technologies that are now gradually coming online. So I think there were like whenever I go back into our archives and look at our member gatherings from 1999, where they had the first prediction markets. Robin Hansen did his first ideas future at our 1999 member gathering, and people literally voted by sending uh, checks to our office. So it, it's been like a pretty uh, interesting organization to join. I'm pretty new to the org. I joined uh, seven years ago now, um, and then have gradually worked my way up. I came ultimately with a strong interest in longevity, but we do a variety of technologies that are really, I think, quite uh, amenable to much of like more fringe, early stage, exotic science and tech funding. Okay, so uh, there are a few tracks that we support and focus on. We focus on molecular machines to better control matter. So that's atomically precise manufacturing. And so that's the original vision that Fawcett was founded on. So really, really like far out nanotechnology goals. And they were always a little bit out there, but now really, I think many of them are really coming online. You have a few fantastic projects uh, doing really incredible stuff with DNA origami and so forth. You have biotech to reverse aging. So who, who is into longevity? Uh, great. Okay. Do we have two hands over there? Great. This is always, I think, the one that I can I usually get most excitement from, from the more Web3 crypto scene. Uh, and it's it's one that we, we really deeply care about. We do, we not only only care about rejuvenation, but also everything from um, the more, you know, chronic space, but also potentially a bionics angle. So we have the biotech angles uh, like thoroughly in there. 
uh, computer science for for secure human AI cooperation. So if you came to our session yesterday, who was at the book session yesterday? There we talked a lot about how can we create better structures in which humans and AIs can cooperate better in a decentralized way. So that's everything from federated learning, privacy preserving, machine learning, but also different ways in which crypto commerce can slot in there. Uh, Neurotech, who here cares about brain-computer interfaces? Okay, good. That's also usually a, a good show of hands from a more crypto-oriented crowd. Uh, and finally, space tech. So who here is really into space tech? That's anything from the more near-term stuff to asteroid mining to more uh, Dyson Sphere, Dyson Swarm uh, types of situations. And so obviously all of these stuff, like all of the stuff sounds pretty sci-fi, but there are lots of projects out there now that are doing really, really great work. All of this is too early stage and too niche for legacy investors to take on. Longevity is now getting there and I'm really thrilled about it. Uh, but many of the other things I think are still a little bit too out there. So at Foresight, we do a few things to support these technologies. Um, so we're really trying to do a little bit more of ecosystem building. So each of these technologies has individual tracks and each of these tracks comes with a few like different components. So we have seminars and those are bi-weekly seminars. Each of these um, seminar groups uh, consists of about 150 to 200 people that are uh, invited. And so they're like mainly researchers in these areas, funders, institutional allies. We have a few folks from the FDA monitoring in the biotech one, for example. But those are like pretty small groups that meet on a pretty regular basis to get um, like a continuous deal flow of stuff that is still a bit too early for other organizations to start and, and to take it on. But for us, um, at least for having a seminar about it and just trying to see how we can potentially help this, either if it's via investing, via um, different types of uh, donation support, uh, or via just ecosystem building, mentorship, and so forth. So we have each of these seminars. If you're interested in learning about the work, they all come with live presentations, with a video, and so forth. So we try to be quite open about how we share the knowledge, but the groups are themselves still quite close to allow good discussions uh, in the Zoom chats. So these seminars exist for all of these. Yesterday, I showed a few ones here. This one may be quite interesting to many of you guys here. That's much of the Web3 space in which we uh, talk, discuss a lot about DAOs, uh, in which we um, basically try to have a little bit of a deal flow of like very early stage Web3 projects um, and so forth. So again, if you're interested uh, you know, in our uh, seminars and if you want to get up to speed, I invite you to just check them out. You can also um, easily apply to join these groups. So we have an application form. We usually uh, accept applications on a weekly basis. Uh, and so you can uh, get onboarded to the groups in case you're working in them. But uh, that's just one of the ways in which you do that. So that's our seminar groups, which are just like a continuous deal flow of new projects that are too early stage. So they usually run by a nomination base. We also, in all of these areas, um, host workshops. And so we usually do in each of these tracks an annual workshop. The annual workshops are really out there to get, they are like a, a bit of, like you can think of them as hackathons and as technical competitions. So in a nutshell, um, we usually have like project developments. So uh, scientists come together for two days, they meet, and then they hack together a project that uses their individual best expertise to make progress on something that isn't really out there yet. And so those are all quite uh, quite out there, the, the different projects. I welcome you to check them out. Um, but these hackathons are usually, I think, yeah, quite fruitful. And so we have them in every one of these tracks. So if you are keen and, and eager to check them out, please feel free to do so. We are currently collaborating probably with Eugene on one that is cryptography focused later this year. Uh, then we have one on biotech and biomarker standardization very likely later this year. Um, and then we have one on molecular machines, better modeling tools for designing molecular machines coming up for those of you who are more into nanotechnology. And so those are um, our technical workshops. 
And then we have um, a bunch of prizes and fellowships and accelerators in how we support our work. And so if you're interested in checking out our accelerators, I invite you to do that too. Our fellowship started five years ago and kind of exploded in the sense that we usually we used to take on under 10 fellows. This year we have over 40. And those fellows work in all of these areas. So basically, if you graduate from the seminars where we try to support you a little bit more, then you become a Fawcett Fellow. And what it means to become a Fawcett Fellow basically means that I'm running around like a headless chicken trying to matchmake you with our mentors and trying to matchmake you with a variety of funders that are in our ecosystem. So we have a really long list of um, mentors that are mixed between funders and that are mixed between domain experts that are mixed between a variety of different institutional allies who can just tell our fellows a bit of the lay of the land of how to start better companies. So what we really try to do is pull these fellows out of academia. Some of them are already in startup land, not all of them are, and just make easy for them to transition and have an easy opt-out process. Currently, two-thirds of our fellows for this year are actively trying to do this step and trying to raise money in, in, in these slots. We also have prizes in these areas. And so since 30 years now, we've been running the Feynman Prize. Um, and so if you're interested in checking out our winners, you can do so here. But safe to say, I think we do good early bets. So Fraser Stoddard won our 2007 Feynman Prize and he won the Nobel Prize in 2016 for his work. And so we really do take, I think, quite early stage bets. And we have we are really fortunate. We have, have have for 30 plus years have had a pretty flourishing community in which we now all just continue to onboard um, new uh, new blood uh, that uh, just is really good at evaluating projects. And, uh, and and I'm always have massive imposter syndrome every day for being in the same room with everyone because people are really quite smart. So why am I telling you all of this? Uh, I'm telling you all of this because, as I said, my main job is about trying to matchmake people like that want to get out of academia that have really, really early stage that have a project that is too crazy for anyone else to support with funders or with mentors that are trying to support this, these fellows. And so that's been going relatively well. But um, I think one really good way on how to streamline this entire process is by creating a DAO. And for that, I mean that many of our funders, many of our donors even, I think would be really eager to fund much more if only they had a really good community to do this with. On the other hand, many of our fellows um, rather than me matchmaking them with individual funders, they could really benefit from just a very easy standing syndicate fund um, or a syndicate DAO um, in which they could just apply to and then the DAO could make the decisions. We have once a year our annual member gatherings. And so I think we still have the one up from last year. So that was in 2021 Vision Weekend where a few of you uh, came to. We had one in San Francisco and one in France. Next year, we're hoping to have one in Singapore. And so what we do at these Vision Weekends, our annual member gatherings, we bring the best of our tracks together, including our fellows, funders, mentors, and so forth, and have a report out of what happened in these groups and where it is that they got, who got which type of funding, and just have a little bit of like a community gathering, basically. And our idea is now, or like my idea is now, um, that what I really want to focus on this year, and I have a few ideas here, but ultimately I would really love your feedback, is on how do we set up a sustainable funding system, funding ecosystem for our various projects. So they are everything from our seminars to our fellows um, to the variety of uh, projects that come out of our competitions. And here's, I think, where I would love your feedback. So here's one potential model that could work. 
So Syndicate DAO is basically um, a pretty easy plug and play format by which anyone can set up a syndicate um, and you can do so uh, Web3 natively, uh, but that has to have only, um, and anyone can join. Basically, someone sets up a wallet and invites other folks to invest in, for example, NFTs. Now, for startup investing and for this early stage stuff investing, it's a little bit more tricky because you have to be an accredited investor. Otherwise, you can't invest in this, uh, like actually, like, you know, proper startup world. But what one could do and what's super easy to do, and we've basically sandboxed this already, is basically setting up something like a foresight syndicate DAO. And then different accredited investors could pay in with this. And that DAO would kind of be sitting there and would come to our workshops and could fund the projects that come out of it would just fund the fellows that come out of it, would come to our annual competitions and would fund what comes out of it. And so we've had significant interest for this already and it would be really, relatively easy to set up. But ultimately, we also want a bunch of community governance, right? Like I think this community lives really and breathes by the people. And on Syndicate, uh, you can already, I think, have a, a certain number of the tokens that you get for investing allocated for basically uh, paying people to do due diligence. And you could do that, this relatively easily um, by just uh, dedicating that uh, that token pool uh, to those folks, and they could even that could even then go into shares in the projects that those people are voting on. But I think this is like the most like let's say vanilla or the easiest one for me to set up because it, it's an easy template. It, they basically create the LLC for you. They do the taxes, da 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 da, and like that's apparently pretty easy. And we've done like that, like we've sandboxed it a bit. But that's, I think, like the first step in DAOs. And we've also talked to Aragon, like, and, you know, there's a bunch of really great DAO models out there that me, like, I'm already, like, I'm pretty struck out and just trying to match make between fellows and funders. And I think, you know, I would ultimately really love your guys' help if you think that there's a better model out there that we could be using that would be not incredibly difficult for us to set up. Then I would really, really love your advice. The syndicate model seems easy enough. Uh, Aragon, I think, has a really fantastic toolkit. They have reputation-based voting, which I think is would ultimately be much more amenable to this. But if you're keen on brainstorming on this, I would love to. Um, and yeah, there's a form out there already. And if you're interested in the Foresight DAO, for that, you don't have to be an accredited investor yet um, because we ultimately want to explore ways in which, for example, also non-accredited investors and even private crypto right, could come in and fund, and fund a bunch of this stuff. We have a lot of people that prefer to donate privately um, and we already take private crypto donations. Ideally, those uh, donors could also fund uh, our projects privately. So anyway, if you're interested in brainstorming about this, I would love to know from you, what are the best financing models? What are the best governance models? Uh, I'm really, really, really eager to do something more of reputation-based uh, voting, uh, if that's possible. And I'm really eager to also talk about uh, incorporation, whether or not to incorporate in the US, whether or where to incorporate instead. Uh, whether the Wyoming law is good and so forth. So uh, anyway, if you're interested in brainstorming on this, uh, the Foresight DAO, um, uh, we are currently experimenting with it. We're sandboxing it. It's probably going to hopefully go live sometime later this year. So if you're keen on uh, experimenting with these types of structures to fund early stage science and tech, then I would love to do that. And now I give it up to Aaron to talk about tech trees, uh, because that's also one of the ways in which the DAO could slot in uh, and fund a bunch of stuff. My name is Aaron King. I'm the research director at Foresight Institute. You're all familiar with by now. Uh, so the concept here is, I'm sure that a lot of you have seen some diagram like this in a game that you've played at some point or seen it in Civ or still RS or something like that. The fundamental concept is that there's simple technologies um, very early on, and then they get iterated on or they get combined together to unlock better technologies over time. And this is a very interesting way of 
diagramming technologies because it doesn't just show you a list of technologies. It shows you the relationships that exist between them. So the idea is like, okay, well, is there a way to use this sort of logic to map out technology in the real world? And it turns out that there is, and it's actually very interesting. We've got interests in several different domains of technology. Uh, there's biotech, which is more longevity, um, space, neurotech, and molecular machines, as well as intelligent cooperation, which is going to be Web3, crypto, machine learning, AI, the kind of stuff that you're more familiar with here. And so the underlying philosophy here is, it goes back to a very old painting uh, <laughs> where uh, this is a, a painting of Aristotle and Plato and Plato's got his hand you know, pointed toward the sky and the interpretation of this scene is that they're arguing and Plato's like, well, you know, you can derive everything from first principles. If you're smart enough and you have enough time, you can just sit down and, and figure out how the whole world works and come up with a perfect system. And Aristotle, he's got his hand out in front of him and he's like, no, no, listen, you got to get out there into the world. You got to go into the trenches. You got to find out how things really are and then iterate on them incrementally, right? And these are philosophies which are often thought of as being at odds with each other. But uh, the tech tree concept actually does capture both of these together. Um, we're going to map out what's currently happening. What is the reality of stuff like crypto or Web3, of space tech, of longevity tech? What's, what's happening right now? And then we're going to have these big picture ideas in the future, which is like, okay, we want to get to, you know, asteroid mining. We want to get to um, <laughs> things like 200-year lifespans. How do you actually get there? You know, what are the concrete steps along the way? And this is where the tech tree concept comes into play there's going to be certain ideas that have more robust logic behind them than others. And we'd like to know what those are. So the features of this whole tech tree concept is a digital, constantly updated map of technologies, a comprehensive list of companies, labs, and advocacy groups, basically everybody who's operating in the sphere for, and what pieces of technology are they particularly involved in? We want feedback from domain experts. So as we draft versions of these trees, um, which we've already started doing, we go out and we ask them, you know, we ask the people that are at the peak of the field, does this look right to you? You know, do, what would you add to this? And then we do bottleneck analysis. We find out what the challenges or bottlenecks for progress are, what's stopping people from moving forward, and then figure out how to flood those particular pieces with support uh, through decentralized bounties or crowdfunding or, or other ways of supporting, you know, trying to figure out solutions for these things. So we've got a pretty good team assembled so far uh, for the, the initial round of tech trees. Um, one lead for every domain of research that we're um, looking into. So molecular machines, we have Yuaning Feng, who's a postdoc at Northwestern University. He's part of the Stoddard's Mechanostereochemistry Group, um, who is a Nobel laureate. Neurotech, we have Marina Polyakova. She's a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences. For intelligent cooperation, we have Ying Tong Lai, who is a, currently a senior engineer at Electric Coin Company. She's also was used to be involved at uh, Ethereum. Uh, for space tech, we have Romain Fontaine, who is currently working at the European Space Agency. And then for longevity biotech, <laughs> there's myself. I've been involved in longevity projects for a very long time and currently 
research director for Foresight. Yeah, so we're, we're making good progress on this. We've got um, a bunch of domain experts contacted already. The initial team has been assembled. Um, we've got some prototype tree scaffolds developed for various different tech domains. The online tools are being constructed. Uh, there's also, there's different variations of them and that's tied into the maps map challenge, uh, which we can go over later. And already it, it's, uh, it's only in the initial stages, but there's already like very interesting sort of information coming out of just organizing um, the, the technology this way. And so some, some challenges and goals have already been identified, which um, didn't, you know, people just didn't think about before. And we've got collaborative prizes being set up. So longevity prize, um, stuff on Gitcoin. Um, there's other areas of collaboration that are occurring. So this is what um, the manually drafted prototype, um, one of them looks like. And then there's a, here's one of the um, online tool prototypes. So this is a dynamic version. It's got like a graph database on the back end and, on the front end is this custom rendering software. So it'll draw out the tree. So it becomes very easy to just keep pushing information into it. And then you don't have to like manually rework it every single time. So it's really important. This tech tree project, one of the most important things is that it stays as a living document um, and that it doesn't get obsolesced over time. People have been making roadmaps for, you know, forever, right? But after two years, they just they get obsolesced and all this work that went into figuring out how things are and, and the current state of the art, it just goes out the window because you have to draw a new roadmap and it's very difficult to do these things. So if we can get a digital, you know, automated system to, to keep it up to date all the time, then that'd be really cool. Um, so we've got Gitcoin bounties. Uh, so we've got, uh, and these are not quite approved. I don't know if there's anybody from Gitcoin here. At the moment, but so they, they, they were submitted just recently. So I'm I'm assuming that they'll get approved pretty soon. What I wanted to say at the end of this was that there is a really elegant way of incorporating crypto tech. Um, I'm not sure necessarily the the currency side of things, but in terms of the, the technology, um, decentralized computation, um, validation strategies smart contracts and stuff like that. There's a way of elegantly incorporating that into this whole scap, like this whole project that we're doing. Uh, I can see it very seamlessly coming into play where we have this giant tech tree. We have all the different technologies there and you've got, you know, QR codes or some way to integrate where you can, you can see, you can directly interact with the effort that is going into trying to solve every single one of these pieces of technology. There's like, Certain, certain aspects of crypto are just really ripe for this particular project. The, the concept of staking and all the technology around that, being able to stake your support to a specific problem or a company trying to solve a problem or something like that. All sorts of like pieces of the t technology um, that just seem like they line up very well. So I guess I'd like to just get anybody have any questions about the project or yes. <laughs> Uh, I had a question on uh, establishing buy-in from academics, right? So how do you recognize a particular node on the tech tree as uh, as agreed upon? And are there any plans to kind of think about how we could put knowledge literature graphs on the back end of that? That is, okay, so there's the foundation of this, which 
is what I'm currently thinking about. But there's also been tons of ideas about layering additional filters and um, features on top of this in the future. So for academic um, buy-in, right now I'm doing it manually. I just know a lot of the scientists in, in the field of longevity. So I, I actually can just go to them and be like, hey, does this look right? But we want to have a way, a seamless way that doesn't require them to, you know, learn a whole bunch of crypto jargon or anything like that, but a way that they can just, they can push their opinion into the tree. And then there's some kind of a validation mechanism that goes on, right? That's decentralized, some, some kind of thing that allows it to get merged together. Um, Right now, we're basically just using GitHub and stuff like that, but there's a, there should be a way to do that. So the point that was brought up for anybody who didn't hear that was conviction voting could be used for this, um, and it seems like a very good use case for that, that mechanism. And I think that that sounds really good. Um, the other point that you brought up was academic literature. So I've thought about this um, in several different ways. One of them is that the, the nodes right now are objects, and you'll be able to click on them. And then it'll expand into like a sub node where it just shows all the different um, strategies that people are trying to use. But the lines can also be objects. And the, what the lines actually do, what they represent is a statement of saying, okay, this technology is connected to this other technology. And you want to ask why, like, why do you believe that these two technologies are connected together? And we can get into the whole thing. We can, put in all the different reasons why in terms of like sourcing all the academic papers, this scientific experiments, you can see a whole list of here's why people believe these two technologies are related. And then here's all the experiments that seem to disagree with that. And you can have them all just pushed in there and just listed out um, in one place. And it'd be very, oh man, it'd be for, from an academic perspective, it would just be so like, fluid because you would be able to trace the logic of like why people believe what they believe all the way back down to like the root of just, you know, where um, the, the root concepts for the whole field. And uh, you wouldn't have to go pouring through reviews or everything else, trying to, trying to tunnel through layers of papers to find out where the original actual observations came from, right? And add in like filters or layers or like the next level level. Um, I think open philanthropy has really good terms for this. They you know, bucket their things of importance, neglectedness, and tractability. I think that's just as important because it's good to know the chain, but it's good to know what's the most important part of the chain, um, what isn't getting the most attention, and what we can probably push on easiest. And that's a great idea. Um, I want to make it a little more tangible than that, just because it's like, how do you know what's neglected or, or, you know, what metrics are you using? So when we do filters and it's been suggested and we've, we have our own ideas and there's other people that have ideas, there's going to be filters for things like how much financial support is any particular technology node getting. There's going to be how many people are working on the problem. There's going to be filters for also like political or regulatory hurdles. You know, how much regulation does any particular field of technology have? And that should inform us it should, it should allow people to come up with their own conclusions about what is under-supported or what needs more attention or what types of attention it needs. Generating heat maps. So we can, so we can take a look at the, the tree and we, you can see at a glance, like maybe there's giant swaths that are just completely, you know, or maybe there's a whole part of the chain that's very supported and there's one crucial piece in the middle that just like, for some reason, everyone forgot about it. That'd be very interesting. Who gets a voice and say, this is what we should direct the value? 
And that's what Evan also will, will talk about, I think, in a second. But so why techniques are uh, exciting is what he already mentioned. You have top down and bottom up in the same structure in the sense that, for example, if you build something out like this, this four minute post that we wrote on just uh, basically like um, the, I guess, a bit more of the philosophy behind it. But if you build something out, right, we want to build something out that is really quite decentralized and is a little bit more agnostic as to what the different technologies are. So let's say this is like one of the tech trees, right? That was an earlier version. If you click on any of these nodes, those nodes unfold and give you advocacy groups, labs, companies, and then the Gitcoin bounties or maybe even projects where basically for a node, different projects could apply. Like we, we're already asking domain experts to put challenges out then different projects could apply for them and maybe the DAO sits at the end of it and actually funds that as an investment arm into the best projects that apply. So there's also really neat ways to integrate that. But we are more interested in the more decentralized version thereof of just mapping the entire space, maybe even in an ideal world, have something like prediction markets on it where you can, and we are already, uh, um, we're talking with Metaculus, for example, which is a prediction uh, market that's pretty, or like a prediction service that is uh, pretty close to uh, um, uh, to Fawcett in terms of its humans. Um, and so that, that's already one that already has a great community going. And so they are pretty good in predicting. So that would be the massively decentralized layer. But why a few other people got excited, for example, uh, Balaji, um, well, first, uh, Trent McConaughey posted this, and that's the graph or the map, which is basically like a pretty, top-down way of structuring a path from here to the Dyson spheres. Um, and so that involves a variety of different areas. But, you know, I saw his and I was like, okay, that's like close enough to what we're trying to do, or at least it could chart a path through the tech tree that we're laying out. So we'd be laying the foundation of a bunch of different labs, of a bunch of different challenges without really too much, yeah, without too much of a specific trajectory. And then different funders could go in. For example, Balaji has this sift tree that is more uh, based on something that he wants to invest in, right? And so uh, this would be basically that every funder could almost have their, like basically a funder looks at the different technology trees that we've drafted for biotech, nanotech, neurotech, and so forth, takes these technology trees and then drafts their own path through the stack. And that becomes part of their almost individualized path through the forest of tech trees that we're building, right? So there's like on like, you know, layering this up, you can have really nice features on this, but first we need to build the foundation. And that I think should be as decentralized as possible and should also be like as, let's say, um, somewhat agnostic still as possible. So, so they're different, um, you know, different ideas, as you said, can like uh, live next to each other in parallel and then the different people, depending on, on how much traction they get, can, uh, can split off. And so that's ultimately... Why I contacted Balaji, I contacted Trent. I was like, hey, look, we're all trying to do similar things. And that's why we came up with the maps map that um, Evan is talking about in a bit where all of these folks are judges on. Oh, actually, I, I want to say one more thing, which is there is now a first prototype that you can. So Aaron already mentioned that you can already interact with this. Right. And so um, one of our collaborators has built uh, one of the first prototypes that you can already edit. And so this is already like a very, very crude version, right? But just to show you some of the functionality, you could hit edit mode. On edit, you can edit any of these slides, put in a new node, you can put in a new highlight. You can uh, see whether it's a core technology, a longevity tech, or general improvement in that space. You can then hit submit. And then on the back end, it gets pushed to uh, our domain experts that sit in the back end. So that it's already, we're already trying to make it as collaborative as possible. And this is one way in which we're doing it. And then the challenges. So we have these seminars that I presented on a little bit earlier, right, that are bi-weekly. In every one of these seminars, we're already making it like a question for our domain experts of just like, what is the number one challenge that you want solved to see your area move along? 
and we're always taking that as those seminar summaries uh, as a um, input to then expand on the tech trees and the challenges, the best challenges that we get through these seminars will then become a Gitcoin bountyable challenges on the tech tree. And so it's a really neat way to just build it as a back end of our programs that we run throughout the whole year anyways. The prototype is up online. The, the edit mode does work and it pushes it to GitHub. And then um, those changes will get like, we, we can compare the changes and then uh, accept, like merge them or, or not. This is, and this is one of the tools um, that's potentially we're going to be using. The, the Maps Maps challenge is supposed to be generating uh, a wide variety of options that, you know, we'll see, you know, which ones um, look the best. Yeah. So uh, how do we deal with disagreements? And that's come up. Um, so, so far, we're pretty early in the process. We haven't seen any yet, but I'm sure that we will. And the thing is, there's different ways of approaching this. Okay. So there's the whole multi-worlds concept, which is basically like you can, you can like fork the whole tree and then be like, okay, this expert thinks that it should be like this. And then this expert thinks it should be like this. And that gets really confusing really quickly. I don't like that. I, I like uh, seeing connections where you can see like how much confidence there is in any particular connection. I like that. Um, and we'll just have to see as we move forward with that, um, what solutions might emerge. So we were talking about when we discussed the Fawcett DAO, we could either have like, for example, one big DAO on top and then have different domain DAOs on the bottom. That Like those are fast DAOs, I think Aragon calls them or like on a different level. But you could even have individual, for example, parts of the, of the tree tokenized where you don't have bounties on individual challenges, but you actually have a DAO sitting not only on one tree, but on each of the different challenges that researchers pose. Because many of them, let's face it, like, you know, for something like, organ transplants, there's challenges on there that each of them require basically a funding DAO, and it's not just to fund the entire stack. And um, yes, we are probably going to have a token workshop on this, uh, maybe at ECC in July, but that's also something that other people that work on the text tree and map maps, which Evan will talk about, also care about. So this, but this would be more of a complicated model, right? Because you literally have to like basically create an ecosystem for every one of the challenges that you do. Yeah. And we want to get there, but we want to start also somewhere yeah. where it's still like <laughs> somewhat approachable. Probably not for the MVP. Probably not for the MVP, but it's, it's definitely on our heads already. Yes, yes, because it's more sustainable right. than bounties. Yeah. I was going to sneak in and add to that. Around a lot of these nodes, there are already communities for those. The question is, how do you get the team working on this specific problem within that particular subfield of the science to coordinate and use and interact with the rest of the global map and each other on some platform specifically? Okay. How big is the incentive that you're about to have academics participate in this system? There's not much that we've generated in terms of like trying to like pay them to, to give knowledge for this. Basically, what I the way I'm seeing it right now at, at the current level is that we do the grunt work. We have to go to them. We ask them questions. We do all the the difficult parts of it. They just have to tell us, you know, any kind of public facing information that they want. And we're we're starting out with public facing information. This is all the stuff that people want other people to know already. But because of the chaos of the world, it's just it's out all over the place. It's in piecemeal, you know, everything's fractional. Everything's just, you know, it, you get one little snippet of the truth here, another there. And it's like, let's just pull it, let's do the grunt work, pull it all into one location. And then it's just sitting there. The entire string of knowledge or logic is just laid out for you. Here's everybody who's involved in it. Sure. Uh, I would 
also say that I think there's like long-term goals around decentralizing more of grant funding. There is a like fundamental order of scale or issue of scale where like the U.S. government spends a hundred billion dollars every year in science funding, and like it's really hard to crowdsource that. Um, that said, a lot of what the U.S. government funds is based on things that have been shown to be effective or safe, often by private funders or foundations. And so if we can organize foundations that really care about impact and some young researchers who are very interested in novel technologies and their use for accelerating scientific fields, I think that that could be enough that we can start a transition where eventual, I don't see success as all grant funding goes through something like this. I see success being that we have national funding entities who are saying like, oh, these ethics guidelines that we're setting up for BCIs, like the way the way that we recommend that you as an EU member country recommend me, like frame these is in the form of a roadmap. And so we can integrate this kind of thinking probably in a diluted form, probably in like a much more accessible form, but we can find what the most important pieces of this are and get those into the establishment because there's an amount of mass like there that is nearly impossible to leverage otherwise. And with that, I will officially hand it off to Evan. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, all right. So uh, I'm Evan Miazono. I did my PhD in experimental quantum optics, specifically applied physics and, uh, or I guess generally applied physics. And uh, I am a like, member and friend of Foresight Institute and a judge for the Mass Map competition, which is this competition around building a platform open platform for these roadmaps so that anyone can make them. A lot of what I'm going to say was already discussed in the last two talks, but hopefully this perspective will be interesting. And I think I have a few things to say that will be uh, significantly value add. I might switch between calling these roadmaps versus tech trees because I came to this problem completely independently of the Foresight Institute. And when I found out they were running this competition, I was like, great, you're farther along than I am in a lot of the deployment. I've done a lot of thinking independently. Let's merge these. And it seems like it's really exciting because there are a lot of people who are coming together at this time, taking the tools from decentralized coordination and pointing them at science and scientific progress generally. Uh, so part of what's interesting, is, I think, is that most of us, if not all of us, know generally where we want the future to go and what we want it to look like. But it's really hard to find images, like robust worlds of what we want the world to look like. And part of that, I think, is because it's really hard to extrapolate. Well, I guess part of it's that media makes it very difficult to tell a compelling narrative in a world that doesn't have conflict. But you also have that, uh, I think it's just harder to imagine technology extrapolated in a good way when we are often surrounded by people who are trying to point out all of the ways that current trends could go very badly. And so I see this math map competition as part of a like hope punk, solar punk effort to create a shared vision around what a good future could look like. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend uh, this talk from Charlie Strauss about how corporations are the original AGIs and uh, they are very much paperclip maximizers. And I absolutely love this comic of, yes, the planet got destroyed, but for a beautiful moment, it created a lot of value for the shareholders. I feel like there's a lot of alignment here and it's growing that the modern structure of capitalism where 
we are just maximizing profits uh, tends to create bad outcomes for humanity. And I think it's that it's not that people are setting out to do these things. People don't want to make technology and products that exploit their users, usually. But at some point, you kind of get lost in what you're doing, or you're staring at the next step, or you only have a really bad metric. Um, I'm not sure if uh, anyone, everyone here is familiar with Goodhart's Law, but there's a claim that any metric, when used as a target, ceases to be a good metric. And so if you have like daily active users as something you're trying to maximize, maybe it's good to keep track of how compelling your content is. But as soon as you start trying to maximize that at cost of all other things, you end up in a very problematic situation. And so there are questions around how do you track progress without succumbing to Goodhart's Law? Um, I would say that misunderstanding lethargy and risk aversion are huge motivators when you look at society at scale and you have these incentive curve, incentive gradients where everyone's trying to do the thing that's most optimal at the given time. And because people are looking on very short time scales, because they're so because they're not able to be or empowered to be risk tolerant and look on longer scales, uh, longer time scales and take these bigger risks, you might have situations where people end up in these local optima that are not global optima. And I make this claim that a lot of times humanity seems to be sleepwalking into dystopias. I think that there are uh, some really interesting, right? There is a lot of interesting writing on how society seems to be very broken and create these outcomes that no one would actually choose from the outside, but everyone acknowledges are surprisingly hard to change because systems have such big inertia. And so this is generally just my plug for complex system science as something interesting. Uh, the Santa Fe Institute has a great podcast if you're not familiar with it. And uh, I guess also uh, cybernetics is a term that you've probably all heard, but may not have linked to the fact that it is this, like, how do we use, how do we merge technology and society to, to create better behavior of that combined system? There are a lot of people, as I was saying, who are interested in trying to map out where we should go. Um, I love that everyone, I, almost everyone who has come to this has referenced tech trees from Civ or other uh, other computer games that map society's evolvement or evolving. I think that there is a particularly compelling flavor of this. And this is less of, uh, I think this is probably less shared globally by the maps map judges but I think it's super interesting to think about some paradigm shifting technologies where a highly effective brain computer interface or a um, artificial general intelligence or even like a uh, gigaton scale carbon capture where its development will impact most aspects of most people's lives. And you can take an analog of a light cone where like this is if you're unfamiliar. Um, it's an interesting concept that's worth reading the Wikipedia page about. Um, Generally, the idea is that because the speed of light is essentially the speed of causality in, in the universe, you can map out all of the things that could affect or could affect one particular event and all the things that event could impact. And if you generalize causality to technology in the space of technological innovation, then you end up with this really cute idea of like everyone involved in this one breakthrough should care about the path we take to reaching that breakthrough and all of the impacts and repercussions that that breakthrough will have. There are ways you could have a BCI that is very empowering to users. And there's also a way you could have one that is very exploitative. And so with that, I found out about and became quickly very enthusiastic about this competition. Um, it is a competition to create an app to crowdsource 
and crowdfund and generally coordinate collaboration in a decentralized way. Uh, I think decentralized and permissionless, ideally, way um, where you have some specific features where and that the judges deemed uh, would be very helpful. Uh, the judges being people who have been thinking about these kind of tech trees, uh, specifically these individuals. And it's, uh, I think, very, I think that the the vision that we've developed has become very compelling to people who want to use modern coordination, like decentralized coordination techniques on technological development. And so a natural competition or question would be, why have a competition for this? Why not just like, if we, if we all care about this, why not take the prize money and fund a developer agency or something? One is, I think that we as judges are a bit strapped for time. And so it's, and may not have the relevant skills to build a very user-friendly app. Um, we tend to be people who are more uh, associated with coordination and vision building and consensus building rather than product building Some in many cases. Um, additionally, I think we expect that people really developing a sense of ownership over this product and taking, like, I guess, if you, make, if you hire a dev shop to build a product, then when they're done, either they're done or you keep paying them to maintain it and improve it. But if you can find someone who is interested and finds this use case compelling, then all you have to do is promise them users and a potential use case and a way in which they can continue to raise funding from probably some sort of donations or tithing on the future platform. And you can now have a clear sense of ownership where someone will be optimizing this continually and have like dedication to making sure that this effort succeeds. And so uh, trying to find people who are either entrepreneurially minded or like have want to have that sense of ownership over this tool as to some extent an outcome within itself empowers the judges to leverage this tool and pursue the outcomes that we want to see this used for. I think that it's worth noting that these tech trees are particularly interesting because uh, I was recently faced with the question of why fund a particular tech tree effort around gigaton scale direct air capture and mineralization of carbon versus like one specific technology. And I love the answer that I received from this other team that's building this active roadmap um, around climate saying, if you fund a roadmap, you're not taking funding away from the effort taking funding away from a specific technological breakthrough, you could be increasing the overall funding pool because having clarity in this space makes it much more compelling for other investors to come in and identify specific things they want to fund. And I think that there's a huge potential for collaboration between funders, researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors, where usually there are information asymmetries that are admittedly like systemic and exist for a reason. Um, Chesterton spends like, can't, like you should know why these inefficiencies exist before you try to claim that you're going to get rid of them. But I think that for areas specifically where everyone's motivated by the end goal in addition to, or even more than the path getting there, I think we can overcome some of those inefficiencies. And so for your average, like a randomly selected uh, researcher from academia. I don't think that this planning might necessarily be sufficiently compelling, but if you find someone who is in climate and has sacrificed like higher paying jobs because they care about 
the problem and they are like ideologically motivated. I think that you have, there are many fields and I think, I feel like Web3 and crypto is one of them where people care more about building a better world they want to live in, in the distant future than increasing their share of the pie in the short term. And I think that, that there are aspects of a field that make some areas more conducive to that than others. And so I think it's very important to acknowledge that when you apply these tech trees, it's probably best to start in those areas. But it's also amazing to go. And I would, take, I would definitely recommend taking these two questions and asking them of researchers that you know. Anytime you're talking to a scientist, ask them what important problem is no one working on, but for no good reason. Or like, what, what would you do if you could get funding to do it or to do anything? I haven't come across a scientist who didn't have a very compelling answer for this or very compelling answer for what they would want to do and a very frustrating answer for why they feel like they can't do it. And you'll also find that there are many scientists who have submitted proposals to get funding to do a thing that they've already done. And like this is an information asymmetry or inefficiency that I think when you have a field of ideologically minded funders and researchers, you might be able to solve that by just giving them a coordination tool and convincing them that giving up their advantages, giving up those particular advantages are worth the value of reaching our goals faster, our shared goals. And so uh, I think there's also a valuable question of why now? Tech trees have, like the idea of tech trees have at least existed as long as these civilization building games. Um, And I think that there's a really great answer of like, this community now exists where we have convinced ourselves with hard evidence that you can organize far more efficiently in a very decentralized way than you used to be able to. And so I think that there have been great demonstrations of networked science generally, but we don't necessarily have the tools. And now that we have the evidence that it could work, if we build the tools, I think we can bring that to people and convince them that this effort could be successful. And I'm super excited to see what progress looks like in the future. Uh, Also a question of what makes roadmaps hard. And I would say that this makes them interesting epistemologically. Um, There are definitely some robust questions you can ask about how you describe future technologies that don't exist. Um, How do you address the fact that there are unknown unknowns about the development of technology, things like that. Um, So there are questions like what types of problems are most conducive to roadmaps? What level of detail do you specify a node? How do you like provide a like, user interface that gives a dynamic level of resolution in the same way that Google Maps does, but with user-generated content? Um, these are questions that we hope the competition will help us answer because we have okay answers to some of them or hypotheses about them, but I think that it really takes some like real prototyping and experimentation to figure out how to do these. Um, and as part of... like. Some of you might be interested in the outcome of the competition. Some of you might be interested in participating. For those of you who are interested in, but like deeply skeptical of this, I wanted to highlight that there is a thousand dollar bounty. If you can tell us why this is like epistemologically fraught or like probably unattainable, and you can give a very compelling reason or like constructive criticism on how we should rescope the problem. If you think that this is something that is too ambitious, but could be made like reasonably ambitious, but still useful. Um, And so we are open to feedback, either positive feedback or constructive negative feedback generally. And then a like short pitch for what I am personally doing. Um, This is things that Protocol Labs Research is doing. Uh, We're 
in the process of renaming ourselves to Protocol Labs Meta Research or something like that because of the amount of research we do about research as a system. But we are interested in also developing novel mechanisms to incentivize nodes, like breakthroughs on these tech trees. We have an event coming up on March 3rd and 4th, uh, Funding the Commons. I would claim that the maps map, the outcome of the maps map competition will be a uh, common good. And I think that the breakthroughs that arise from those competitions will also be common goods. And so there's some general interest from a lot of crypto in how do we fund more of these common goods and what this conference and what these relevant discussions will be specifically focused on is how do we find novel methods of funding and accelerating these breakthroughs. Aaron had said that part of the goal is to flood potential research research breakthroughs with support, either like logistical, operational, financial, et cetera. And I think that there's a really interesting question of like, what are all of the ways we could do this? Because I think grants and bounty programs are great, but I don't think they're sufficient. I would highlight this meme that I love that science is science. The process um, is very similar to software that runs on the firmware of people and people have bugs in the form of cognitive biases. The interactions between people have the bu- have bugs that are not dissimilar from distributed systems bugs. Uh, and m- most of these bugs are specific to either the people or the communities. And so you can't just take one set of incentive mechanisms and throw them at every given field and expect them to, sol- to work in all of them. And so we're interested particularly in creating customized mechanisms to accelerate specific fields. And I think that this is... I think this is knowledge that is very important and kind of underemphasized. There is a big community around uh, meta science generally, and some fraction of it is specific to how do we make science more reliable? And then there's also some that is related to how do we make science more efficient or faster? And most of these are very like discovery focused. And I'd love to use this, use the outcome of the math competition to make that much more experimental. Because I think that they're like, I feel like the crypto community is particularly interested in and willing to run weird funding experiments and see what works. And so I want more weird funding experiments. I have some funders that I'm talking to who are willing to put money behind weird mechanisms. If you have weird mechanisms, come talk to me. If you have potential funders, come talk to me. If you have things that are unfundable currently, also come talk to me. Other than that, I have a list of random recommendations that seem to go over well at a previous talk in case people were interested. And I would love to welcome the other two speakers back up here and we'll take some questions. Thank you. Currently ongoing, I don't remember what the deadline yeah. is actually. So uh, it started um, a few months ago. The deadline for the first submission is uh, the 1st of March. And so at that point, um, so we have 60K in total prize funding and that's distributed across a few prizes. I think there's about almost 50K really just for the main winner of this, um, then 10K for special features. So for example, if you're like really, really, really into replication markets or whatnot, and you build like a specific thing like that for something that could operate on Maps Map, then maybe that's something, you know, that wins the special feature award, then there's a 1K bounty. But for us, like what we have done from our community, like basically once every Tuesday, we have these uh, community calls uh, with people that are competing. And one thing that came out of it is that many of them are really actively interested in being part of a longer term community. 
So the, after the first price is done, ideally we want to support projects that come out of this forward to actually build out this tool. So the first one that is uh, finished on March 1st is really just for a prototype to show us that you could do it, basically. Uh, and, and the more sophisticated, obviously, the better, but you don't have to hit, have to hit all of the features perfectly. And then from there on, hopefully, we can make this more of a com long-term community-run effort. And I'll add that all of the uh, submissions have to be open source, and so we should have great collaboration and forkability on all of these. They also need to be able to allow people to actually, I don't remember if it was a hard requirement that anyone can add their own, uh, like anyone can fork the state of a tech tree and generate their own nodes and have some great, some ideally very user-friendly mechanic for merging them. And so they're like, definitely think there needs to be a way for multiple people to have their own uh, active state because different people should have different views around how the technology will unfold. For those who didn't hear that, the question was about how do we how have intellectual sparring without like enmity within scientific discussions? And I think it's a really important question for decentralized collaboration and coordination. I think that one of the most important things is clear alignment on the top priority being the long-term goal. Uh, I think that there are a lot of fields of science where, and I think that modern grant-making paradigms have exacerbated and fostered this framing, this like strongly zero-sum framing. If I get the grant, you don't. And I think that you could change that with novel funding mechanisms. I like there are things you could start doing where you have uh, like you set up, you, you talk to mechanism designers or like game theorists and realize that uh, you could set up funding situations where it's more clearly, uh, well, I'm going to say more clearly uh, a cooperate, cooperate dominant strategy. I can't say that this isn't being done actively, but it's difficult to try to propose modern, like propose that I imagine within these national science funders or like propose more radical steps towards that. Generally, I think that building alignment on the long-term goals and outcomes, especially for ideological areas, like I, I would have been far more surprised if you had said that you knew scientists who wanted nemeses in the field of climate science. Um, because I think everyone there knows that the nemesis is CO2, atmosphere is CO2. Um, and so finding that is, uh, I guess, starting with areas like that becomes more benefit, like becomes easier. Starting with a lot of younger scientists and convincing them that we can try, like we can work together and increase scientific funding to a field if we do more sparring, if we show more progress. At the end of the day, I think these systems are all humans. And it's important to recognize that the mechanisms that you employ can at best influence the humans, but building a, a sense of community and shared ideology and like morality or values is probably going to be the most valuable thing that can be done, but that has to be done slowly and at an individual level. I'll comment on that. So uh, the back end is going to be a graph database and the structure of that can we can probably allow people to just build like APIs or something to directly access that backend and they can just generate their own view of what it is. So I think that's kind of what you're getting at is like get all the data together and then you can have various layers of interpretation for that data. I was going to repeat the, repeat the question, a bit of the question. Um, for those who didn't hear the, it was around now that the metaverse is gaining momentum. Why not use the metaverse for the, uh, these tech trees, why not generate and 
house these tech trees in the metaverse. Um, you, but you're going to add a clarification. I definitely, I, my personal answer is that I strongly believe that there's some like three-dimensional, more interactive version of a tech tree that would be much better than the kinds of things you could get in two dimensions. I also have a strong, I have a set of very strong opinions around what the metaverse should be. I guess I see it as an iteration of the web. I almost see the metaverse as web 3.1, where like there's a lot of features from the current internet that we've found particularly valuable, like uh, collaborative editability and I like cross-domain uh, identity. And when we take those and ideally make them decentralized, permissionless infrastructure, but infrastructure nonetheless, at some point we will have a like 2D metaverse where every web page is some collaborative location uh, in virtual space. And then we can just change the dimensionality from two to three for those who have the hardware to access that. Okay, I think um, I, I, maybe we can take this offline because we don't want to run into the next uh, okay. session. I just also want to say, uh, you know, we're two people that come to this challenge. There's a lot of other judges. Like Balaji has a very different vision. And there is a, a, yes. a few folks here also. Like Every one of these judges came to this from a different angle. They all want to see different things in this tooling. So we presented, you know, we presented the foresight tree vision of this. Evan and Protocol Labs, you know, I have a slightly different angle. And then there's a bunch of other judges too. So we don't want to give the opinion that, you know, we're speaking for everyone here. Yes. Those are just like our own, uh, like basically what our communities care about. But that's also ultimately what makes this tool so amazing. Because ideally a bunch of different communities should be able to use this for many of their individual uh, technology and project mapping, right? We want to use it for tech trees specifically to map specific ambitious tech goals. Other communities may want to use it for a bunch of different things. I think uh, we now have the next session coming up with Eugene, the second DSI session of today, and I think the last one of our track. So with that, I'm going to hand it off to Jack Yin uh, to present on some of his research. So please come and introduce yourself while I pull up your presentation. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. My name is Jack. I'm Jackie Poo on the internet, um, trying to centralize around identity. So I have a background in analytics and data science and startups. And uh, basically, I got, I got in introduced to Index Co-op, uh, which is a DAO that runs index crypto index products. And I started doing work for them. And... As I was doing work for them, I realized, like, okay, the way that DAOs are run, the way that these decisions are run, are made, is very, is very interesting. And I think there's a lot of peculiarities about the way that index co-ops, governance, and index and token distribution happen that can be illustrative when talking about DAOs and token voting in general. Um, so the the structure of what I'll be talking, uh, the summary essentially of, of what I'm about to tell you is essentially that DAOs have very low voting participation, and so their governing systems can actually be captured by minority activists. Uh, and through, you know, the, you know, data analytics, you can measure this threat and surveil this, this activity with on-chain data. Um, the structure of the talk is going to be, first I'm going to talk about the theory, like voting theory in general, then I'll talk through what I found and then sort of zoom out a little bit and then talk about um, DSI in general. And um, since a lot of these slides are going to be kind of dense, especially if you're not familiar with voting theory, uh, if anyone wants to ask questions at any time, um, feel free to raise your hand. Um, so there's a lot to talk about. Okay, so the theory. Most DAOs use one token, one vote, and this is robust, and I think it's a very common shelling point for people, but it has a lot of known issues. And Vitalik talked about it, and you know, one main issue is capital inequality, means that uh, voting power concentrates in the hands of a few. And the second thing is since votes are all on-chain, 
this enables bribery and collusion because if you bribe somebody, somebody can prove that they voted the way you wanted. So uh, the third thing that is not endemic to one token, one vote, but is true empirically, is that DAO governance systems have low turnout. So that's the third thing I want to focus on. So these weaknesses imply two ways to capture a governance system. Right? One is you can either have all the tokens and you can vote and make decisions by yourself. The second way is by bribing people. I am going to focus on uh, the first, right? Uh, collusion is also a problem, but uh, you can have a sufficiently decentralized voting you know, constituency, but still end up with a lot of collusion. So um, I just ignore that. I'm just going to talk about single-handed capture. Okay, so let's talk about how an IIP index for the index co-op is made. This is uh, this is like an extension of a lot of different like you know um, <laughs> IP processes uh, like EIP like Ethereum improvement process. Uh, they also have something similar, but essentially you make a proposal. All the voting is done on Snapshot, which is an off-chain voting system. Um, you can use your tokens to cast yes or no, and then if the total votes on the proposal reaches quorum, then the result of the vote is binding. And if it's not doesn't reach quorum, it has no effect. Now, what is quorum? Quorum is essentially like the amount of people who participated that lends legitimacy to the decision. So the example I want to give is in June 2017, Puerto Rico had a, a statehood referendum and 97% of the, vo- of the voters in Puerto Rico voted yes, they wanted to be a state in the United States, but only 23% of the Puerto Ricans voted. So is this sufficient quorum? Is this a legitimate decision? Is 97%, is this a binding decision or not? And I guess most people said no, right? But that's I kind of want to draw attention to that because that quorum is a very key aspect of why there's vulnerability in the first place. So index co-op has a very low quorum. Um, in general, we take 5% of tokens, of, of, of floating tokens, to be the minimum amount. For important decisions, it's 10% of floating tokens. Um, so that means that you don't actually need to capture 60% of the active token distribution. You only have to capture the, the voting token distribution in order to capture the, the, the voting process. And you need this kind of low quorum because if you set a quorum really high and no one's actually participating, nothing gets done. So this is a, a compromise that has been made, right? In exchange for, you know, more flexibility and faster movement, you also kind of enable low, low, low voter participation. So what am I looking for here, right? So uh, essentially the methodology where I'm trying to measure how dangerous or how captured a, a voting system is, is something called a critical voter. This is a term that comes from voting theory. Essentially, if there's a single person who can change the decision of, of a proposal by themselves by switching their vote, then that person is a critical voter. Um, so, you know, imagine like a 100% unanimous yes vote, right? If one voter owns 60% of the stake and they switch their vote, they single-handedly decided to switch the whole proposal to no. And so notice that this definition for critical voters implies that if you have a split decision, if you have like a, let's say, 50-50, right? You have many more swing voters, right? So many, many voters are, are then critical voters, which implies that if you have a lot of critical voters for a proposal, it's probably less of a problem. But if you only have one, that represents centralized power. Uh, any questions on the theory, voting theory, et cetera? Yeah, all voters are treated independently. Um, and so in this case, like the way I'm looking for critical voters, I assume that every other voter does not change their vote. So I'm not looking at coalitions of like these two people would together be 60%. What could happen is like both of these people could swing it by themselves if you're talking about like a 50-50, but then both of these users have like 20% or something. Like a single voter, uh, a single individual voter is likely not to be the single individual swing vote for a state, but certain states might be, in, might be swing states for the presidential election overall. So like, yeah, in an American presidential or like a one person, one vote situation, you don't have any critical voters. 
Okay, let's move on. So let's talk about what actually what we actually find, right? And the structure here is I'm going to talk about index co-ops token distribution, and then um, and then I'll talk about what happens like historically in the actual uh, in actual votes. Um, in the token, and I want you to focus on specifically the amount of tokens that contributors own relative to capital. Let's say the, the investors. Seventy-eight uh, percent of tokens cannot vote. They're investing. They're locked up in contracts. They're locked up in the treasury. Twenty-two percent of the tokens can vote. So what that means? We have ten million tokens overall. Maybe two point two million tokens are votable. So what does this imply? Right. This implies that there's a tension between contributors who have only two point two percent of the total vote who actually do all of the work, and then the token owners, who are the investors or you know the people who are farming, liquidity mining, etc. Um, so you have, and quorum is only 5% of circulating supply, and the contributors are extremely active. So they end up being very overrepresented in decision-making. Um, so it's not, it's not actually useful for us to say, oh, you know, if 30%, if like 30 of the addresses that we see collude, they can dominate the whole um, voting process because that's not what happens, right? We don't have 60% of the voting population voting on things. We only have 5 or 10%. Um, so we actually have to look and see historically what has happened. Um, so what I did is essentially I went to Snapshot, I pulled all the voter level data, and I classified each proposal. And I just, for each proposal, I look for critical voters. Uh, what do we find? First of all, um, a large number of proposals fail to reach quorum, right? It, depending on the category, which is not so important here, uh, many, many proposals just fail to reach quorum. And then of the proposals that do reach quorum, half the time they have critical voters who decide how this is going to go. So if that person had changed their mind about how they wanted this proposal to go, they could. Then we can look into, you know, who these voters are. You only have nine voters who are ever the deciding voter, right? And one voter in particular, which we, we know who they are, they're one of our key investors, they, they are the deciding voter every time they voted. So practically speaking, we're working for them, right? This is not really a decentralized org at all. We are working for these specific guys who are activists. And so I, after like seeing this, I have some recommendations around um, you know, what we should do about it, but th that becomes like less scientific, right? So I kind of want to just move past that. As we start shifting into kind of talking about decentralized science and how, and what this is, like all, everything I've published, everything I've created is all entirely public, right? I, these findings that I made are all on the index co-op governance forums, all the code and all the, you know, the data that I pulled is all in the index co-op analytics repo. And so if anyone is interested in this sort of thing, you know, feel free to reach out, you know, help you fork the code, all that stuff. And what I kind of have, well, the questions I have for DCI in general, as we kind of move to the rest of the topics, essentially are, one, what does it look like to validate research outside of traditional scientific institutions? Because the the, the research that I've been doing, kind of, it, it has a lot of the ideal scientific, you know, components, right? It has a clear thesis, clear data, clear methodology. Um, it's reviewable. Um, however, there's no decentralized peer review system that can give everybody else the confidence that my work has been reviewed for bugs or whatever, Right. Nobody else knows, like, you got to just have to trust I did it correctly. And there's no, we don't have any institutions there. Another thing I want to ask is, like, what does funding look like in DSI? Um, in this case, I happen to be a contributing member, member of Index Co-op. So I took an interest in this research topic, and I, I had, like, a stipend because I was a, a core contributor. Um, and I'm honestly, if I had said, hey, Index Co-op, I want to work on this project. Can you pay me for it? They would have said no, most likely. Um, so is there a way to create, like, a sustainable funding ecosystem in DSI? Uh, and the third thing I kind of want to leave you with is... How do researchers, independent researchers, connect to collaborators, prior work, existing theory, that sort of stuff, right? I kind of did this, again, primarily in isolation, just out of my own curiosity. And, uh, you know, 
I, I don't have anyone to talk to. I don't have any way to like validate a lot of the stuff that I was doing or the recommendations that I made, which is kind of why I left it out of the presentation. Um, what does a, what does a, a independent researcher community look like? Um, and yeah, and I'll just leave it for general Q&A or just thoughts in general about any of the stuff. Uh, okay, the question is about Gitcoin grants and funding. Uh, yes, well, I've been looking at it in a, a bunch of different ways. Some of the org research organizations I've been looking at, for example, like Medigov, um, they are funded by Gitcoin. So like they, a bunch of different organizations are trying to, to do these sort of things. But I think Gitcoin directly might be a little bit trickier. Um, I could do that, but it's my gut instinct as someone who has not done Gitcoin grants is that it takes a lot of like uh, marketing for yourself. Like I have to market myself and get other people to donate to me. And I don't want to do that. 